you have a Bible or Bible on some device, then join us in um, the book of Revelation chapter 11. We're actually going to read the very last verse of verse 10. Let me ask you, you a question this morning and, and then have you kind of discuss a little bit together. Jesus has called his church to be his witnesses. So what keeps us from having courage to be his witnesses? What keeps us from having courage to be his witnesses? Take a couple minutes with the people right where you sit and talk about that. What keeps us, maybe keeps you if you want to be personal about it, what keeps you from having courage to be a witness for Jesus? Talk about that together. All right, let's share a little bit. If you're willing, somebody share with, share with us, what's something that keeps us from having courage as witnesses for Jesus? Judgment of others. Judgment of others. Okay. Too busy. Too busy. Not, confident Not confident enough in my knowledge. Good. Yeah, awkwardness that could create awkwardness within the relationship, right? Okay, good. What else? Okay, the fear of maybe losing that relationship. Anything else? Unbelief? Fear, rejection, all these things, right? Bree is just like bringing it, right? What else, Bree? Come on, Bree, let's go. No, it's good. Yeah, all kinds of reasons, right? Um, overthinking it, right? I, I would fall into that category of just like completely like, oh, what are they? I got to know exactly what I'm going to say before I say it kind of a thing. And Courage, right? Courage is kind of stand in the, in the midst of the battle and be a witness for Jesus. If you're familiar with the Lord of the Rings story, and we've referenced this multiple times in this study of the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? And actually, Tim, a few weeks ago, brought this up, up at the very end of the gathering, and I thought, man, how appropriate is it for today? There's a scene in the Lord of the Rings story, the battle at Helm's Deep. And Aragorn and Rohan and all of them, they're inside this bunker, like this shelter that's carved out inside this mountain called Helm's Deep. And pretty much all evil is at their front door. I mean, it's just... Right, And they're just like, doesn't look good. It just doesn't look good. And so they're all inside this, this shelter. And Aragorn writes, there's a moment when he gets courage to go out and face, just ride out into the battle and face the enemy. And where he finds that courage or what the catalyst for his courage is when he remembers the words of Gandalf that Gandalf spoke to him a few days prior. And the words that Gandalf said to Aragorn were, you know, on the fifth day, look to my coming. Look to my coming. And so Aragorn sees like the sun begin to rise, I believe, and in that moment he remembers the words of Gandalf. But not only does he remember the words of Gandalf, but he believes that Gandalf will keep his promise. And so he's like, let's go. Let's ride out into the battle. Let's face it head on. 
And he finds his courage because he remembers Gandalf's words, but then not only does he remember them, he believes that Gandalf will keep his word, that Gandalf will keep his promise. So where do we find our courage as followers of Jesus to be witnesses for Jesus, to ride out into the battle and proclaim Jesus as king? I think our catalyst for courage can come from what John sees in Revelation chapter 11. Now, let's pull back the curtain a little bit on this drama called the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's remember that the book of Revelation is less about how the world is going to end and more about the victory of the church through our resurrected King Jesus. That's really important. That's the lens through which we're to read the book of Revelation is that it is less about how the world is going to end and more about the victory of the church through our resurrected King Jesus. Now, as we come into and pull the curtain back and come into chapter 11, I just want to be completely upfront and honest with you. I don't understand everything that's going on here. I don't. I don't claim to. There's a lot of varying interpretations when it comes to the revelation of Jesus Christ and when it comes to what John sees specifically here in chapter 11. I don't, under, I don't claim to understand it all, but I'm going to try to do my best to help us simplify what John sees and what it means for us, right? But always keeping in mind that this revelation was first intended to encourage the Apostle John and those seven churches in Asia to whom it was given. It was first intended to encourage them as they were experiencing intense persecution and some of the people in the church at that day were living complacent lives. So we need to make sure that we remember that that's ultimately the purpose for this revelation was to encourage the church to keep going for Jesus and to call them out of complacency. And so let's, let's kind of jump into Revelation 10, and, or Revelation 11, beginning, as I said, with the very last verse of chapter 10, chapter 10, verse 11, and then we'll read to verse 2 to start of chapter 11. So John says, and I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So the very end of chapter 10, John is told, I want you to go prophesy. So John is told to kind of become like, like this Old Testament prophet. Think like Elijah, think like Moses, think like Zechariah. And I think that's important because of what John is about to see here in chapter 11. So John is given this responsibility, this role that I want you to be like an Old Testament prophet. I want you to prophesy specifically to the peoples and nations and languages and kings. And then he's told to go measure the temple of God, to measure the altar, the number of people that are there. And, and then he's told, but don't measure this outer court. Now, we want to use the Bible to understand the Bible. And this would immediately make John go back to the picture of the Old Testament temple. And so the people who would be worshiping inside the temple were God's chosen people. 
But John is told, don't measure the outer court. Why? Because back in the Old Testament temple, that outer court was the hangout for the Gentiles. It was the hangout for those who were not worshipers of God. All right, so here you have John saying, I want you to, he's told to go measure the, the temple, the altar, the people of God, all right, the people that are worshiping there, but don't go measure that outer court, which is the hangout for those who didn't worship God. And so what, what's, what's all this mean? Um, well, if you go to the end of chapter, or verse 2, he says, For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Well, there's only one holy city that we're taught and told in Scripture, and that's really referencing the city of Jerusalem. And so John is told, listen, those people who are not worshipers of God, they're actually going to live such sinful, rebellious lives that they're going to devastate and desecrate the very place that God claimed to be his. And so what's, what's all this mean in the opening of Revelation chapter 11? I think John is, to try to simplify this, I think John is seeing two distinct communities of people. He's seeing those who worship King Jesus and those who don't. All right, so he's seeing two distinct communities of people, those who are worshipers of God and those who aren't, and those who refuse to worship King Jesus are desecrating, devastating the very rule and reign of God by how they're living in the rebellion against him. Because the holy city of Jerusalem was, that's where God's kings would rule and reign. And so those people who aren't worshipers of, of Jesus, they're actually desecrating. That's literally what the word trample means, to desecrate and devastate. So they're desecrating the very place of God's rule and reign. So you have two distinct communities of people, worshipers of King Jesus, those who aren't, and those who aren't worshiping King Jesus are desecrating the very name and rule and reign of Jesus by how they live. I think that's to simplify what's happening here in the opening part of chapter 11. So, so let's keep reading. John continues to hear this voice speaking, speaking to him in verse 3, and he says, This voice says to John, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. And if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So what's all this mean, right? John is introduced to these two witnesses. Well, who are these two witnesses? Well, verse 3, we're told that they're granted authority. So these are two witnesses that have been granted authority. They're wearing sackcloth. Now, sackcloth was something that an Old Testament prophet primarily would be one to, like burlap. Think of like burlap. Scratchy, you know, I mean, you'd always, you ever done, you know, everybody put, wear, anyone wear burlap? Like you just have that in your closet, you know, something to wear, you know, for certain occasions. I mean, we don't, right? But it's just something that was special that people would put on really to represent and symbolize repentance, like a humility. In fact, to help us see this, I want you to go back to the, the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 3. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, 
chapter 3, verses 6 through 10, all right, to help us see what, uh, get a little bit of an idea of the importance or the representation of the sackcloth. In Jonah chapter 3, verse 6, a little set the stage here, Jonah goes, finally ends up in Nineveh, preaches the word of God to them, and then this is their response. Jonah chapter 3, verse 6 through 10, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So here you have the king of Nineveh understanding and believing the message of Jonah, believing God to be who he is, and he puts on this burlap, this sackcloth, as a representation of his own heart to say, I'm sinful, I'm humbling myself, and now he calls on the whole city to do the same thing. And they're putting on this, this, this burlap, this sackcloth, which really symbolizes like a change of heart or desire to turn from sin to worshiping God. And so the message of these two witnesses, they're given authority and they have a message of repentance. They have a message of calling people out of their sin back into worship of the creator God. Well, what else do we learn about them? So they have authority. They're preaching this message of repentance. They're called two olive trees in verse 4. Again, use the Bible to understand the Bible. The prophet Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 4 saw the same thing. He saw two olive trees in a vision. And so he, in his vision, asked, well, what do these two olive trees mean? And he's told they're anointed ones. And in that context, the anointed ones referred to a king and to a priest. And so here you have now these two witnesses. They're given authority. They're called witnesses. They're given authority. They have a message of calling people to repentance and respond to Jesus they're referred to as kings or priests, two olive trees. All right, what else? They're called lampstands, two lampstands in verse 4. Now, where have we seen lampstands before in this vision? The very opening vision. And Anybody remember what the lampstands represented? The very beginning of the revelation of Jesus? They represented the church. Seven lampstands represented seven churches that the revelation is given to. So again, I think John has already seen lampstands before. And in that, when he saw them first, they were described as representing the church. So these two olive trees, two lampstands are standing before the Lord of the earth. And then in verse 5 and 6, they have like this power, like fire coming out of their mouths, right? And the, the fire consumes people. And then they have power to, to kind of stop or start plagues. Well, it, you know, and then also they have a power to keep it from raining for three and a half years. Anybody remember some Old Testament stories of prophets who maybe kept it raining from three and a half years? Yeah. No? Good guess. Who? Elijah. And also Elijah, if you know his story, he actually called down fire from heaven to consume soldiers who wanted to take him captive. From an evil, with, and bring him back to an evil king. I think, I think, 
that when we read this, John's thoughts would have immediately gone back to the prophet Elijah. So just as God gave Elijah the power, right, to, to call down heaven, the supernatural power, and to power to keep it from raining, and then think of the plagues. Who did God give power to to start the plagues? What prophet? Moses. God was the one doing it, but he was doing it through his prophet Moses. Same with Elijah. God was the one doing it, but he was doing it, you know, all these supernatural things through Elijah. And I think that's just what we're meant to understand here is that these two witnesses have been given some supernatural power from God. And so think about it. These two witnesses are called witnesses. They're given authority, kings and priests, two olive trees, lampstands to light up the world, given supernatural power. And then in verse 6 and 7, they're told that they're prophesying. In verse 7, we're told that they have finished their testimony. If you go down to verse 10, it says, And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets. So again, these two prophets, just like John, are to kind of take on this role, this responsibility of an Old Testament prophet. All right, so what's all this mean? All right, let's back up a little bit. What are the 12... 60 days and three and a half years mean? I don't know. It could mean a literal three and a half years. There's many people who believe that. All right, it, it, to meaning that this could be a future event where during this three and a half year period of time, all this is going to take place. It could mean that. Or maybe it could mean something like what Peter wrote where in God's calendar of time and how he measures time, a day is like a thousand years. All right, so maybe this is just a period of time where God is going to send witnesses with a message of repentance on the nations, calling them to turn and follow Jesus. I don't know, but what we do know is that this ministry of these witnesses really mirrors Elijah and, and Moses in a lot of ways. And somehow what we see here is that in the middle of God's justice, God's judgment, God is sending his witnesses to extend an invitation of mercy for people to still respond to the king. So who are these two witnesses? I don't, like I said, I don't know for sure, but let me just throw something out. Okay, can I just throw this out to you? And you can chew on it and take it and throw it away, whatever, I don't know, but just let me throw this out to you. To try to simplify this, what if these two witnesses are just simply to mean followers of Jesus, those who follow King Jesus? Here's what I'm thinking. We're not told specifically the names of these two witnesses. Some of you may think of like the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus takes three disciples up to the mountain and two Old Testament prophets meet them there. We're told who those two prophets are. They're named Moses and Elijah. These two prophets are not named. We're not told who they, are, who they are. And I think if God wanted us to know who they were, he would have told us. So I just wonder, maybe these two witnesses are just simply to represent those who are witnesses for Jesus. Because think about it this way. These two witnesses are given authority. Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority has been given unto me. Luke chapter 9 and 10, Jesus gives authority to his disciples. They're called witnesses. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus says to his disciples, you will be my witnesses. 
Right? Like olive trees, kings and priests, at the very opening of this revelation, John calls the church a kingdom and priests. In fact, the apostle Peter in chapter 2, verse 9 says, you are a royal, a kingly priesthood, referring to the church. Their lampstands, which we've already been told, describe the church. And they have a supernatural power given to them by God to communicate and proclaim a message of repentance. And we as the church have been given the same, the power of God himself, the power of his spirit. So I can't be sure. All right? I can't be sure, but I do think there's some truths here that we can take for ourselves here as current witnesses of Jesus. And I do think that we have to remember that when we come into the book of Revelation, this was first intended to encourage John, who is isolated on an island, simply being persecuted because of, he's a follower of Jesus. Jesus, he needs encouragement. The first century church needs to be encouraged. And so just like John and the first century church, these two witnesses might, might be, in, be meant or intended to remind John of our mission. That we have a mission and a message to proclaim, and that is to call people out of their sin and into the kingdom of God. But as we see, this often comes with a cost. Let's keep reading. And when they had finished their testimony, verse 7, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. And so what happens here? Verse 7, when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Listen, John is basically told that these witnesses are invincible until the God, until the work God has given them is done, is complete. I find great comfort in that. That you, as a witness of Jesus, are invincible. You're invincible until the work God has for you has been completed. That's what we see here. That when they finished their testimony, this beast, now, We've already seen the bottomless pit that was in chapter 9. What's the beast? We're not told what the beast is. The beast might be Satan himself. The beast might be a demon that Satan sins. I don't know what the beast is. But what we do know is that this beast kills, it murders these witnesses. And these witnesses, their bodies are lying in the city of the great city where the Lord was crucified, which would be the city of Jerusalem. And it's called, symbolically, Sodom in Egypt. Now, to leave, in Jewish culture, to leave a body from being buried was absolutely insulting and dishonoring. And here it's called, what's happening in the city of God is so much sin that is described like Sodom and Egypt. A city and a country that lived in such rebellion against God that they received God's judgment. So I think what he's describing here is sin has become so rampant that even the city of God is deserving of judgment. It's so bad. It's so evil. What's happening is so wrong and sinful 
that they won't even allow these witnesses to be buried. They're just insulting God. They're insulting his, and dishonoring his rule and his reign. And it says that the people were like celebrated like Christmas. They exchanged presents when the two witnesses died because they were tormented by the message of these witnesses. Again, that would take us back, I think, to the prophet Elijah when the, an evil king said to Elijah, you're, you're a troubler. You're a troubler, Elijah. And Elijah goes, no, 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 I'm not the troubler. Your sin is what's bringing the trouble. And I think that's what we're seeing happen here in this vision that John sees. And so they celebrate like Christmas. They're excited. And, well, what does all this mean? I, I don't know exactly, but I do think there's some things that we can see here. And I think it's just maybe a reminder to John and to the first century church and to us that, listen, we can't expect a world that's ruled by the prince and power of the air. We cannot expect a world that's ruled, ruled from this beast or ruled by Satan to like your message, to like what we have to say. We can't expect that. John himself, the one who's seen this revelation, was the one who recorded Jesus' words where Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And so I, I just think we're reminded that, listen, following Jesus, living the mission of Jesus may end in death. It may. But there's hope. There's hope. And that's verses 11 through 14. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So this voice tells John that after three and a half days, God will breathe resurrecting life into these two witnesses, and they will overcome death. And not only that, but what do, they get, what do they do? They stand to their feet. Again, this is an Old Testament reference, I think, back to the prophet Ezekiel. And if you maybe know this story where there were dry bones in a field and God breathes life into those dry bones, what do they do? Those dry bones stand to their feet. They stand to their feet, Ezekiel chapter 37. And that's what these two witnesses do. They've received the breath of the life from God. They stand to their feet. Listen. The power of God and his life living inside you is what overcomes death for you. You do not need to fear death if you have the power of God's life living inside you because the power of God's life overcomes death. And then they hear, the witnesses hear a voice say, come up to heaven, and they go. And how do they go? They go in a cloud. What does that make? Does it does that bring, ring a bell? Maybe Jesus? I know Jesus goes to heaven in a cloud. Think about the similarities between these witnesses and Jesus. In Zechariah chapter 3, Jesus is referred to a branch, as a branch, like a tree. Jesus refers to him as a lamp, himself as like a light of the world, like a lampstand. He arrives announcing a message of repentance. He's murdered in the city of Jerusalem. After three days, what happens to him? stands to his feet, and then he ascends to heaven in a cloud. And I just wonder, I don't know for sure, okay? But I just wonder if when John is reading this and the first century Christians are reading this, they're re reminded of their king. 
of Jesus. They're reminded of him. And they're encouraged because they're reminded of their king who, like these witnesses, experienced the same thing. And it's almost as if they're being reminded, John is being reminded and the church is being reminded, listen, you too are witnesses for King Jesus. And what happens then to the people around them when they see this happen? Great fear overcomes them. If you've ever seen that scene in Helm's Deep, when Gandalf shows up, all the like orcs, the evil like turn and they look up and there's like this fear on them. I think that's what ha- what's happening here. These people are mesmerized by what God is, the power of God. And what they're seeing happen and they're in fear because they know that they're deserving of the, of the judgment of God. And someone described this moment as perhaps the greatest moment of the ministry of the two witnesses is that they manifest the power and promise of God. The power of God to overcome death and the promise to raise believers from the grave. And Maybe that's the whole point of this, is to be reminded of the power of God to overcome death and the promise of God that he will raise his witnesses from the grave. And so how do we unpack all of this? How do we explain all of this? Go back to that very first thought of Aragorn, Lord of the Rings, right? He finds courage because he remembers Gandalf's words, look to my coming, and he believes that Gandalf will keep his promise. And I just wonder if John and the first century churches and us today were reminded to do the same, to remember what our king has said to us and what he's promised us and remember his power. And that just like these witnesses, if you are a follower of Jesus, you too are a witness. You're a witness. And you've been given authority. You are kings and priests. You are like a lampstand lighting up the gospel and the good news wherever you go. You have the power of the very life and breath of God living inside you right now. And you have the promise that God, just like he has done with his son and like he has done with these witnesses, his promise that you too will rise again. Church, you're just like these witnesses. And just like these witnesses, we do not need to fear. We can stand to our feet with courage. You can stand to your feet with courage because you've been given authority. Your identity is king and priest. You've been given the supernatural power of God living inside you to communicate and declare this message to a world in need. And you're calling people to turn at like wearing sackcloth to turn from their sin and repent and come into the kingdom of Jesus. And so here, here's, here's the thought that I want us to grab a hold of. Our final thought. While you wait for the return of King Jesus, stand to your feet. Stand with courage. Because as his witness, he has given you authority, his power, his living breath and life living inside you, and the promise that like your king, you too will rise again. This is where our courage comes from. It comes from our king and his grace and what he's done and what he's promised to us. And so, as the band comes, I want you to talk a little bit and think a little bit this morning. What's it look like for you to stand, for, stand with courage as a witness for Jesus? What's that look like for you? Knowing now that like these witnesses, you've been given authority. You've given his, been given his power. 
that your identity is secure as a king and priest, and they have the promise that you too will rise again. Knowing this, what's it look like for you to stand with courage as his witness? Just talk about that. Discuss that with people around you. Let's share a little bit. Anybody willing to share? What's it look like? What's it look like to stand to your feet with courage as a witness for Jesus? Anybody want to share this morning? For me, just um, just being obedient when I feel the Spirit wanting me to say something um, just about Jesus and believing that I have authority to say that. Um, not say it like cowardly, but like with you know power and grace um, that Jesus has given me. Yeah. What else? What else does it look like to stand with courage? To stand to your feet. Mm-hmm. Not letting anxiety build up up to that moment when you, you know, like asking the Lord to go before you and to prepare your heart and, um, you know, giving you the words ahead of time sometimes. And that way when you get to that moment, you pray that God's going to show up. You know that he's going to show up. Um, I think I said it better to Maddie, but <laughs> that's what I that's good. That's good. Just trusting, right? God to give you what you need in that moment to stand. That's good. What else? Anybody, anybody else? Yeah, Mike. Amen. Yeah. Even in death, which is the worst the world could give us, we still have victory. Amen. Yeah. So here's what I want us to do. When you, when when you stand, let that be kind of a, like a, I don't know, just a representation of like the hope that we have, right? That you don't have to sit for Christ. You can stand to your feet with courage because of who he is and what he's done for you. You can stand with courage knowing that he's given you authority, he's given you his power to communicate this message of repentance and redemption to a world that's desperate need of him. And that our victory, even if it means death, our victory has been claimed for us because of Christ and his resurrection. So church, stand to your feet. And let's stand with courage this morning as we worship him.